And now, Manufacturing Matters with your host, Cliff Waldman. Good day, everybody, and welcome to the fourth episode of Manufacturing Matters with Cliff Waldman, a new show here on Manufacturing Talk Radio. I'm your host, Cliff Waldman. Let me spend a few minutes telling you about myself, about my vision for the show, and then we will be off on an excellent discussion with our distinguished guest today. I am the CEO of New World Economics, a research consulting firm that is going to focus on manufacturing as well as entrepreneurship and frontier markets. I've had um, a career here in Washington as an economist prior to finding New World Economics. I was the chief economist at the Manufacturers Alliance for Productivity and Innovation Research Foundation. While at Maypie, I'm proud to say that I won three national research awards for my published work on things that matter greatly to manufacturing, productivity, innovation, demographics, and the Chinese economy. I've also had the privilege of working in a state government policy research unit and for a small business research team here in Washington. I have done and continue to do quite a bit of public speaking, something I enjoy very much. And I'm privileged now to be able to bring this show to you where we can have a deep and mature discussion of manufacturing issues. I'm taking an active role in the economics community this year, serving as president of the National Economist Club and as co-chair of the Manufacturing Roundtable for NABE. Enough about me, though. What do I see for this show? As I've explained on the past three episodes, Manufacturing Matters with Cliff Waldman will do for the U.S. manufacturing sector what the manufacturing sector does for the broad economy. That is, we'll look under the hood and we'll push the envelope. We're certainly going to cover the headline stories of the day, and there's plenty of them, to generate understanding of their considerable impact on manufacturing performance. You know what they are. These include such front-burner issues as the changing U.S. and global economic outlooks and the increasingly difficult geopolitics of trade. But we're also going to go beyond the headlines to focus on forces that are catalyzing rapid structural changes in America's factory sector. The key word here is new. New science, new markets, new economic thinking, new companies, and new industries. We will consider the contribution of each of these to the emergence of a new manufacturing story. Our guests will be the best in their fields. I will be speaking to top economists, knowledgeable scientists, prolific authors, as well as as executives from innovative goods-producing companies. In sum, we are offering the best people to give insights on cutting-edge dynamics. I'm sure you will agree that U.S. manufacturing deserves no less. And in keeping with that promise, today we have a top thought leader. In previous episodes, we had Chad Motre talk to us about moving the U.S. manufacturing sector moving forward past the Great Recession and the post-crisis years. We had Michael Mandel tell us about the dramatic technological changes that are happening in manufacturing. We had Rob Atkinson talk about competitiveness. 
in this episode, we're going to even go more macro in, uh, than those areas are, and we're going to look at what's happening in the globe, in global trade. And for that, I have a true Washington thought leader, Tom Deusterberg. Dr. Deusterberg has had a career that has been as broad as, as it has been deep. Most successful people in Washington find a niche, politics, research, policy making. But Dr. Deusterberg has really had successful careers in all of these. He is currently a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. Previously, he was executive director of the Manufacturing and Society in the 21st Century Program at the Aspen Institute. Most importantly for me, for me, from, two, from 1999 to 2011, he served as president and CEO of the Manufacturers Alliance slash MAPI. As I told you before, an economic research and executive education, or, uh, executive education organization based in Virginia. In my early years with MAPI, because of Dr. Deusterberg's influence, those were years of great professional growth to him, and I owe him a debt of gratitude for that. He was also director of the Washington office of the Hudson Institute, as well as being assistant secretary for international economic policy at the U.S. Department of Commerce, chief of staff to Representative Chris Cox and Senator Dan Quayle, and associate instructor at Stanford University. He co-wrote U.S. Manufacturing, the Engine of Growth in the Global Economy, as well as three other books. And he is the author of over 150 articles in journals and major newspapers that would take several episodes for me to describe. He is on the Board of Advisors of the Manufacturing Public Policy Initiative at Indiana University's School of Public and Environmental Affairs. He's a graduate of Princeton University and received his M.A. and Ph.D. from Indiana University. Tom, welcome to the show. Cliff, thanks for having me, and uh, let me congratulate you on uh, putting this program together and continuing your efforts on behalf of the U.S. manufacturing sector. <laughs> Thank you very much. Tom, uh, there is no question that we are in a time of revolutionary change, potential revolutionary change in the global order. What we have known has about globalization on so many fronts, from protection its fights, to Brexit, to persistent questions about the euro, uh, the euro globalization and the global order is, is being challenged. I'm going to ask you to make a, a rather bold, admittedly a rather bold prediction. Looking ahead, do you see the resulting changes in the global economic order coming from this period as being favorable or generally unfavorable to U.S. manufacturing interests? Well, let me uh, try to answer your question up front and say, yes, I think it's going to be favorable for the U.S. manufacturing sector. But if I may, I'll, I'll just try to give a little bit of my understanding of the, the forces at work. What uh, the, the global uh, trading order was that was built after the Second World War was, by and large, an uh, effort to uh, put together a, a, a globalized system that uh, had free trade as its core economic principle 
and uh, the United States was the leader in this. It was uh, cognizant of the history of the early 20th century when protectionist and mercantilist forces uh, associated with authoritarian systems and with the British Empire, for that matter, um, uh, had resulted in, amongst other things, two world wars and, and, and the Great uh, Depression. Uh, visionary leaders after the uh, Second World War, especially in, uh, in the United States, but also uh, in, in Europe and elsewhere, uh, saw that, that those uh, mercantilist and protectionist forces were really one of the causes of the disarray that led to the, the great conflagrations of the world wars. So they were very uh, uh, determined to set up a new system and the United States subordinated some of its own economic interests to trying to help revive the global economy and establish this firm and uh, consistent system of uh, more or less free trade. So that worked pretty well for about 30, 35, 40 years after the Second World War. Germany and Japan, Europe as a whole, um, emerged as uh, vibrant uh, economic powers. Again, new areas like East Asia, um, the, the, what we used to call the Asian Tigers, Australia, um, the peripheries of Europe all became uh, much more prosperous. But the Part of the price for that was that not everyone practiced pure and unadulterated free trade. Um, and the concessions that the United States made to some of the other uh, countries, uh, in part including uh, Europe, uh, eventually led to a slow erosion of uh, U.S. dominance in global markets, and that, that especially applied to the manufacturing sector. We saw it in the auto industry. We saw it in machine tools. We have started to see it in technolo technology industries. Then, uh, with the emergence of China in the last 30 or 40 years, and especially in the last 20 years, as a global, really a peer competitor, uh, the situation for especially manufacturing uh, deteriorated. And it was partly because uh, Japan just, or I'm sorry, China uh, and others as well did not follow very closely the tenets of, of free trade. They subsidized their industry, they were willing to dump products on the global markets in areas like uh, steel. Um, they systematically forced uh, the transfer of technology. So in the last really 10 years or so, and especially after the great uh, recession of the 2008-2009, uh, there was a growing recognition in the United States, and I would say in Europe as well, that the, the system wasn't serving the interests of uh, workers and producers in uh, the Western world, let's put it that way, mostly in Europe and the United States. So that translated in certain respects to um, uh, political reaction um, and a reassessment 
of the system that was set up. And I think what we're seeing, you referred to it as protectionism and mercantilism, uh, and I guess I have too, uh, and that does describe the practice especially of China. Um, but instead of, I think, uh, jettisoning the whole idea of free trade, what we're seeing um, crudely perhaps in the case of the United States and, and asserting uh, its interests and, and, and applying tariffs and applying pressure for change, but what we're, what the ultimate goal is a rebalancing, a, a turn towards more reciprocity in the practice of the trading system. Uh, unfortunately, I, I think we needed to have uh, um, some determined efforts to get people's attention, uh, again, especially in China, but not limited to China, uh, that the uh, system was not working as well as it should. And uh, I don't think ultimately what we're looking at is a return to uh, the pre-Second World War system of sort of spheres of influence and uh, closed uh, mercantilist empires. I think what we're trying to achieve uh, what the United States and some of its allies, and I would cite especially the, the Europeans and the Japanese, uh, we're trying to achieve a rebalancing uh, towards a more reciprocal uh, system where everyone practices the same sorts of economic policies. So in that, finally getting to the end of my overlong answer, uh, I, th I think we can uh, be hopeful that the traditional entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial spirit and technological excellence of uh, American producers will um, uh, benefit from a system that is more uh, reciprocally balanced. That's well. It, it's certainly good to hear. You know, the positive note that uh, your, your discussion um, ended on. You know, I, I've spent many years in my career uh, sitting with manufacturing executives in, in uh, Maypie's excellent council program, and I, 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 it was a chance to to not to learn economic forces from from the inside out, which many economists don't, quite frankly. And one of the things that kept striking me over and over again were the the complexity and the uh, the evolution of supply chains. And I've, I've come to the conclusion that global trade in man, manufactured goods has become increasingly characterized by complex, multi-country supply chains. So they have to be their existence and their growing existence has to be taken into account in this discussion. I'm going to ask you, are these supply chains changing the economics and the concomitant politics of global goods trade? I mean, given that one product, the often complex products that advanced economies make, could be made in multiple countries, is, is the old kind of country versus country battle an antiquated paradigm for thinking about trade economics and trade tensions? Does that even make sense anymore? Well, I think you're on the right track, Cliff. Um, the supply chains are complex, and just to give, you know, the most obvious example of the um, 
competing forces that are result from that. Look at the global auto industry. Um, America has a trade deficit with uh, Germany and Japan in the auto sector, but um, the leading exporters of automobiles, especially, but also SUVs from the United States, as anybody in manufacturing knows, are uh, German, Japanese companies, as well as some of the domestic American companies. So the politics of, say, trying to put tariffs on autos uh, in Germany or Japan uh, may backfire on us. So that's just one example of, of the, the complexities that are introduced. Uh, but that being said, um, I think there is room to try to work to uh, create what's euphemistically called the, the level playing field or you know, um, balance of reciprocal interests, as, as others call it. Um, and we also know that in certain respects, and it's highly complex across industries, but uh, supply chain networks can move. Um, we're starting to see that with um, technology industries, and there's been a heavy critique of China, for instance, um, for uh, they are the dominant producer of cell phones. Well, the technology for cell phones is largely American and European, although... Uh, Japan, Korea, and China are, are certainly uh, moving up uh, the, uh, le their levels of uh, ability to be able to compete. But it, it is possible to move production around. Uh, the supply chains are not fixed in stone. They can be moved. And that changes the equation even further. I mean, if you're producing a cell phone in Vietnam, for instance, instead of China, it has different political uh, implications and economic implications as well. So it's a, it's a pretty complicated system. Another fundamental story in manufacturing that plays into the discussion about the global order is very simply the relationship between capital and labor. Shifting demographics are a, a fact of life in the advanced world and even in large parts of the developing world. Fertility rates are falling, birth rates are falling, populations are aging. Shifting demographics and rapid process innovation that we hear about almost daily are increasing the role of non-labor factors in U.S. manufacturing production. Over time, I'm going to ask you, will this change the political discussion surrounding particularly U.S. goods trade? Will it be less a, a discussion about jobs and them taking our jobs, quote unquote, and will it, will it therefore be more a, a discussion about technological competitiveness rather than jobs versus jobs? I think by and large, Cliff, you've hit it on the head. Um, it, it, it is moving clearly to... Uh, competition for technology, but that also uh, includes, as some of your own work has uh, uh, exhibited quite quite well, um, process te technology, engineering know-how, uh, the ability to uh, 
make a uh, an efficient uh, factory. Um, those are important factors as well. Um, so the the competition will be increasingly on who has the best technology, who has the best process technology, uh, who has, has the best and most efficient supply chains, and so on and so forth. That being said, um, I, I think we can't totally dismiss the, the importance of labor. Um, it is diminishing and will continue to, to diminish, but there was an interesting anecdote that I saw in the last couple of days uh, from Elon Musk in, uh, talking about the problems of, that Tesla is having in production. And I guess he's about to set up a factory in China, but he had gone in the direction of trying to employ as much robotics as he uh, could get his hands on and use efficiently and grew pretty frustrated. And he said something to the effect that the uh, the value of human labor is sometimes underestimated, which I think is true. And you know, Japanese production systems um, have uh, for a long time sort of emphasized the input of uh, production teams of people, of real people, instead of just robotics. But, you know, the general trend that you outlined is, is certainly uh, the way we're going, but let's not totally underestimate the importance of labor. I want to turn to a subject that was a considerable subject of discussion, in, particularly in my early years at Maypi, currency. Currency is a persistently vexing problem for U.S. manufacturers. Lately, anyway, we seem to see with more regularity a situation where the U.S. is the strong economy in a weak world. That gives us the dubious award of a rising dollar with all of the competitive problems for U.S. manufacturers who sell their output into global markets, and an increasing share of value-added in manufacturing is sold into global markets. So in the context of, of our conversation today, uh, broad question here. While the world is quote-unquote rethinking globalization or readjusting globalization, while the world is at it, should we also be considering a, a some readjustment of, of the currency regime, of the currency realignment, so U.S. manufacturers are not constantly burdened by currency problems? Well, I think the short answer is yes, but I don't know exactly how to do that. Um, I can recall in my career uh, a couple of episodes of um, where the U.S. currency misalignment the higher valuation of the currency really hurt the United States, but in which uh, the United States was still the, by f far the uh, dominant economic power in the world. I mean, the first was the, the Nixon uh, crisis in 1970-71, uh, where he simply sent his Secretary of the Treasury out there and by fiat, declared that the U.S. was going to um, uh, devalue its currency. He had a big Texan, John Connolly, who was the Secretary of the Treasury at the time, and, and he just did it. Then again, in, uh, more recently, 1985, 
it was the time when uh, Japan was uh, thought to be the uh, rising economic superpower that was going to displace the United States in manufacturing. And indeed, the Japanese currency seemed to be uh, way undervalued. And we were also losing market share to the Europeans at the time, especially the Germans. And again, uh, the Secretary of the Treasury, another Texan at the time, uh, Jim Baker, called together uh, the Germans and the Japanese and put together the Plaza Accord, which led to a, a... incredible um, revaluation, especially of the Japanese yen, but also a 40% revaluation of the European currency vis-a-vis the dollar. So we were able in those instances just to uh, use our economic might to more or less dictate uh, a solution. Well, we can't do that anymore. I mean, our share of the global economy is uh, not that uh, dominant anymore. Um, Asian and European competitors um, have stronger economies, bigger economies, and we can't push them around unilaterally anymore. Uh, There is a sense that um, the um, Chinese currency, which is manipulated by the Chinese for its own advantage, um, and one can also argue, and uh, I I think it's a a true assertion, that within the European Union and the European Currency Union, uh, the German, Dutch, uh, Nordic countries have undervalued currencies, and we have a $150 billion trade deficit with uh, European countries, mostly in Northern Europe. but they hide behind uh, the 28-nation uh, European Union and the 13-nation uh, currency union, which has weaker economies, uh, Greece, Italy, Spain. Uh, one could even include France at times. Um, so the German uh, currency is way undervalued uh, compared to what it would be uh, if it were an independent country. How to get at those uh, misvaluations is much tougher. And at some point in the Trump administration, we're probably going to see the president try to take this on. Uh, my, my guess is that he will take Germany on at some point or at least blame Germany for the, uh, it, the weak uh, euro. I don't know how it's going to come out um, I don't know if there's any clever way to uh, achieve a revaluation of undervalued currencies without some political agreement. Um, So that remains to be seen. Let's turn to a few region-specific issues, and it's hard not to start with China. Let me suggest a few things to you about China, then ask my question. Its growth is slowing precipitously, and not just cyclically, but but structurally. Its population is aging to the point of exacting a growing burden, a significantly growing burden on its public finances. Given that, do you think that China's trade position in the world is going to soon start to weaken? Are we soon going to be confronting a fundamentally different China as internal dynamics 
take it away from being the uh, the feared trade power that it has been? Well, I think that uh, the era of eight to ten percent growth in China um, is over. Uh, the demographic uh, problems uh, are taking a toll. Uh, Chinese economy has gotten over leveraged. Uh, they have no really viable social security system, so the population has to save money um, to pay for hospital bills and old age, what amounts to old age insurance. So the, account, the their economy is going to grow a lot more slowly. They're going to have to be more careful in the way they use their uh, investment capital. Um, that suggests, amongst other things to me, that the efforts of the Trump administration to get a trade deal with China are based on solid grounds. The Chinese need to not have the additional burden of a trade war um, because they're an export-oriented economy and it could be devastating to future growth in that economy. So I think we're going to get a trade deal with them. Um, the other factor with China, is, I think, is they're very determined to move up the, the scale of sophistication in their industrial economy. Uh, they have a, you know, a, a very specific programs to be, become world leaders in technologies like aerospace or robotics, artificial intelligence, um, semiconductors. So they are they're effective they they they're not always effective in doing doing that but they are moving they are moving up the technology scale so they're going to be a competitor to some of our leading industries in the future so you have that uh, sort of dual dynamic of a slowing economy in need of a trade deal which should help the United States but on the other hand uh, slow improvement in their technological um, prowess, which will mean that they're going to be a competitor in a different sort of way going down the line. With the great focus on China, I, I believe that we often forget about the third largest economy in the world and one that has given the world so much in terms of uh, process innovation thinking, and that is Japan. You have written about the promise, the potential, and the benefits of a U.S.-Japan trade pact. Do you think that a U.S. trade pact with Japan would impact China's attitude in the current negotiations with the U.S.? In a broader sense, I'm asking, is there something to a more multilateral approach in U.S. dealings with China? Yes, I think absolutely, and I, I've written about that with regard to Japan, but also with regard to the European Union as well. I do think we need a um, concerted approach uh, to um, take on the Chinese challenge. Uh, the other reason for doing a more um, uh, uh, targeted free trade agreement of some sort with Japan is that uh, since uh, President Trump pulled us out of the so-called Trade Pacific uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, um, some of the benefits that we would have gained there, for instance, 
better access to the Japanese agricultural market, better access to the some of the industrial markets were lost in those concessions that the Japanese gave, uh, especially in agriculture, have gone uh, instead to the other members of the, uh, the, the successor agreement, mostly Canada, Australia, and Vietnam. So we need to recapture um, some of those benefits by starting off with Japan. And also Japan is very sophisticated and uh, has developed some good uh, policies uh, with regard to high technology industries through uh, for digital commerce, um, for protection of intellectual property. And we need to lock those in with an agreement with, uh, with Japan and try to then uh, internationalize those um, those components of the uh, what I hope would be an FTA with Japan. Final question. I want to bring India into discussion. Now, why is that? Well, for one thing, demographic projections suggest that India's population will surpass that of China by about 2025, not too long from now, and it will thus be the most populated country in the world. Economists are projecting that Indian economic growth will exceed that of China over the next few years. Years ago, that would have been thought uh, an outlandish prediction. Now it's, it, it's accepted. And India has a significantly, a significantly younger population than China. So it's hard not to believe that India is, is, isn't going to move into the, the true powers of, of, glo- of the global trading system. Given that hypothesis at least, I'm going to ask you, what issues, positive and negative, do you see in the short term for U.S.-India trade relations? Well, India, the good news and the bad news about India is that the uh, influence of the um, British um, uh, system persists. Um, They have a rule of law uh, which is the good news. The bad news is that they're very bureaucratic, and the rule of law uh, is used um, to, in many instances, to stifle competition from the outside. Uh, India is, um, you know, a, a proud, ancient power and seeks to regain that position. But that means that they use all of the tricks of the trade of the modern legal system, including the international legal system through the World Trade Organization, to uh, protect advantage in areas like, um, uh, for instance, the pharmaceutical industry or the nuclear power industry. and their internal organization is um, is has a, a regional aspect, and they have not ever really overcome the sorts of differences that you saw in Europe, for instance, in the 18th and the 19th century, where uh, internal tolls were and restrictions of movement of goods and services. Um, uh, impeded trade and efficiency. 
I mean, these are 19th century problems, but India still faces some of the 19th century problems. Uh, the purely geopolitical factor is that uh, India's, uh, has, for many years, was sympathetic to uh, the Soviet Union, and then after the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, saw itself as part of the developing world bloc that included um, Brazil, Indonesia, China, and they were not very helpful and have never been very helpful in moving uh, the world uh, trading system towards a more liberalized free trade orientation. Um, now that China is uh, such a, a strong competitor and the Soviet Union no longer exists and eyes have been opened in uh, India, and there is a vibrant, uh, especially technology, uh, middle class and entrepreneurial spirit, um, it's, we can hope that they will shed some of the barnacles of their, their past behavior, and they seem to be doing that and uh, aligning more with the United States um, and with Jap Japan, for that matter, who's made it uh, part of their national policy to encourage sort of uh, Japan, India, U.S. Uh, uh, implicit alliance. I wish I could be more hopeful about India. Um, it certainly has all the potential that you outlined in the form of your question, but I just don't know if it will ever be realized in a, a very dynamic way. Tom Dusterberg, you gave us your time, your expertise. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Cliff, and thanks for doing this program. My pleasure. Listeners, Obviously, in these early episodes, we have touched upon big themes, big global change themes, big themes of competitiveness, of technology. In the subsequent episodes on Manufacturing Matters with Cliff Waldman, we will be taking these big themes and exploring them on a regional, on an industry, and very often on a company level. I look forward to going on that intellectual um, adventure for you. That's it for today. Uh, this is Cliff Waldman reminding you that manufacturing matters, and I will see you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.